You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated and time-consuming fast. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, Vanta. Vanta's leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. Watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. The FDA warns of a vulnerability affecting biomedical devices. Ransomware's effects continue to trouble the U.S. Marshals Service. U.S. Justice Department shifts how it deals with large-scale cybercrime. Fresh fish from the GRU? Kayla Barlow looks at unicorns and zombicorns. Our guest is Manaj Sharma from Symantec, explaining the difference between Zero Trust and Sassy. And Killnet runs an Ask Me Anything session. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Monday, May 1st, 2023. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is warning healthcare providers of a vulnerability affecting the universal copy service software in a multitude of Illumina devices. The vulnerability impacts a range of devices and instruments used primarily in sequencing DNA for diagnosing potential genetic medical conditions, as well as research. The vulnerability allows for an unauthorized user to remotely control, alter settings, configuration, software, or data, and can alter genomic data outcomes to show no results at all, or an incorrect or altered version of the results. The FDA says that on April 5th of this year, Illumina notified affected parties of the vulnerability and advised checking the relevant devices for signs of exploitation. No exploitations have so far been reported. Illumina's chief technology officer, Alex Aravanis, wrote in a LinkedIn post that the company has developed a software update for the vulnerability 
which he says will be free and require little to no downtime for most. A ransomware attack against a U.S. Marshals Service computer network is still causing the agency to experience an outage. As the Washington Post reports, a key law enforcement computer network has been down for 10 weeks, the victim of a ransomware attack that has frustrated efforts by senior officials to get the system back up and running, raising concerns about how to secure critical crime-fighting operations. The effects of ransomware can be protracted and difficult to remediate fully, The U.S. Marshals Service, by no means an inept or poorly resourced organization, affords a case in point. They didn't, it's worth noting, knuckle under to the extortionists. The U.S. Marshal refused to pay the ransom and decided to wipe all devices that could have been used to facilitate the breach. This has caused some frustration among agents. According to the Post, in the case of the TOG system, The network has existed outside regular Justice Department computer systems for years, unnoticed in the open, crowded Internet. Many agents had their work phones wiped, which resulted in the loss of text conversations and contact information, which is inconvenient but not crippling. The service is working to rebuild its systems and reevaluating its network architecture. PC Mag reported from the RSA conference that the U.S. Department of Justice has shifted focus away from arrest and toward disruption and prevention of cyber attacks. U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco explained that the goal is now to minimize harm. We're not measuring our success only with courtroom actions and courtroom victories, she said. Monaco used the Colonial Pipeline attack as an example of how to protect victims. For context, the DOJ was able to seize approximately $2.3 million in Bitcoin Colonial Pipeline had paid the criminals to recover its files. Monaco attributes this success to Colonial Pipeline's willingness to work with the DOJ. This approach is not centered on prosecution. Monaco says, The direction we've given to our prosecutors and investigators is, you've got to have a bias towards action to disrupt and prevent to minimize that harm if it is ongoing, to disrupt it and take that action to protect the next victim, and doing so will not always yield a prosecution. The DOJ's Cyclops Blink operation, in which the DOJ worked with Microsoft and other private companies to discover and disrupt a botnet operated by Russia's GRU, is another example of this approach. The botnet hadn't yet been activated, and its disruption amounted to proactive mitigation— And that's what justice is interested in. A LockBit affiliate has fallen out of the ransomware gang's good graces after using LockBit's ransomware as a service tool against a school district in Illinois in February, Bitdefender reports. Olympia Community Unit School District 16 discovered that it was victimized on February 26th of this year, and LockBit's leak site began counting down to April 12th as the date on which all the district's stolen data would be released. The LockBit administrator, however, updated the leak site with an apology for the attack against small innocent children, and that administrator even seems to have offered the decryptor for free with apologies, saying, Please forgive me for allowing the attack on small innocent children. The stolen data has been deleted. To get the decryptor, please give me the decryption ID. I am very ashamed, but I cannot control all partners. Anyone can join my affiliate program as well as break the rules. I have blocked this partner. 
So there may be some small honor among thieves, or in this case, ransomware as a service operators, but they remain thieves nonetheless. On Friday, April 28, 2023, CERT UA, Ukraine's computer emergency response team, reported that Russian operators were sending phishing emails that misrepresent themselves as sending instructions on installing a Windows security update. Bleeping Computer writes that the Computer Emergency Response Team of Ukraine, CERT UA, says Russian hackers are targeting various government bodies in the country with malicious emails, supposedly containing instructions on how to update Windows as a defense against cyber attacks. CERT UA believes that the Russian state-sponsored hacking group APT28, also known as Fancy Bear, sent these emails and impersonated system administrators of the targeted government entities to make it easier to trick their targets. APT-28 is associated with Russia's military intelligence service, the GRU, and CERT-UA is both certain of and unambiguous with respect to that attribution. CERT-UA describes the attack process as follows, stating, During April 2023, the government computer emergency response team of Ukraine, CERT-UA, recorded cases of the distribution of emails with the subject Windows Update among government bodies of Ukraine, sent apparently on behalf of system administrators of departments. At the same time, email addresses of senders created on the public service at Outlook.com can be formed using the employee's real surname and initials. The warning adds, the sample letter contains instructions in Ukrainian for updates to protect against hacker attacks, as well as graphical images of the process of launching a command line and executing a PowerShell command. Should the victims follow the instructions in the email, they'll find themselves installing a PowerShell script that simulates a Windows update while it in fact downloads a second malicious PowerShell payload in the background. That payload deploys information harvesting malware that abuses the legitimate Maki tool. CertUA concludes, We recommend restricting the ability of users to launch PowerShell and monitor network connections to the Maki service API. The attack is interesting in a self-referential way. It exploits fear of Russian cyber attacks in order to accomplish exactly that, Russian cyber attacks. And finally, we turn again to Kilnet, that prominent Russian hacktivist auxiliary that now says it's reinventing itself as a for-profit operation. Kilnet held an Ask Me Anything session on their Telegram page this past Saturday to answer questions about their new self-designation as a private military hacking company. The questions raised were mostly about how they'll operate. Kilnet responded, We created four sub-detachments consisting of former cyber criminals and former members of special services, not only from Russia. At the current time, we are ready to not only defend the motherland, but also conduct computer network attacks and destruction of intruders of different levels throughout the world. They also explained that the price per mission is going to depend on the complexity involved. When asked what kind of file-sharing system they'll be using, the response was Skype. Kilnet also explained that they have very tight and trusting relationships with international specialists that provide them with 24-7 support in accomplishing their goals. Regarding their pricing, they explained that they could destroy the electrical infrastructure of Ukraine and Poland for a sum of $30 million. 
adding that every destructive operation against electrical infrastructure costs money. We mention that destroying the electrical infrastructure of Ukraine, Poland, or indeed anywhere else is a lot easier said than done, and were it that easy, why hasn't it already been done? It could have saved the Kremlin the expense of all those cruise missiles that failed to get the job done in Ukraine. A side note, interestingly enough, Kilnet seems to be pricing its missions in dollars, not rubles. We hope that's not a bad sign about the strength of Russia's currency. Anywho, most of the remaining questions were about Kilnetiers' personal lives and education and about how they're offering opportunities to learn more about being a hacker. Kilnet ended their Ask Me Anything by explaining that their days of altruism are over. They're done destroying civilian infrastructure or conducting nuisance-level DDoS for free. From now on, it's all about the Benjamins. Their activity won't continue at its formerly high tempo, but they will continue to support Russia and its interests. They say they came to this line of work because they hate the Polish people and Ukrainians, but now they need to monetize their hate. And alas, sadly, there's always been a market for that. Coming up after the break, Caleb Barlow looks at unicorns and zombie corns. Our guest is Manaj Sharma from Symantec to explain the difference between zero trust and sassy. Stick around. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. everybody want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor splunk you know you need to keep operations humming around the clock but potential disruptions are everywhere splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime the world's largest enterprises rely on splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient resilient and innovative with Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com resilience. 
One of my favorite games to play at RSA Conference is Buzzword Bingo. This year, the center free square was ChatGPT. But maintaining a solid presence on the playfield are sassy and zero trust. And for better clarity on the distinction between those two things, I spoke with Minaj Sharma, Global Head of Security Strategy at Symantec. I look at the zero trust and SASE as two sides of the same coin for a very large purpose. And I explain that where the exceptions are. Okay. But they're very different too. So one is a product and an architecture that you buy. That's SASE. Yeah. Zero trust, on the other hand, is a cybersecurity framework. You cannot sell zero trust. You cannot buy a zero trust. Zero trust is, an, is, is a framework that you adopt and build for yourself. So to, to build something, SASE is the responsibility of the vendor itself. And you are the consumer of that technology. And all you are responsible for, the, the actual customer, is identifying the best way to get the traffic into that cloud. And then the policies that will govern how you secure yourself. Zero Trust, on the other hand, you need a set of tools that integrate with each other. And is driven by the intelligence that you derive out of your environment and buy or acquire from a third party and then you build that framework for yourself and you operate it by yourself. So when you think about it, how these things are two very different things, how are they even, even related to each other? Right. What? And when you read the, the official definition of SASE as Gartner defines it, it is impossible to build a SASE product, if you will, or an architecture without the zero trust elements already built into it. So that's where these two things get, get very, 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 very similar, if you will. Yeah. And SASE has to deliver zero trust outcomes when it is deployed. It does. But just for clarification, is, would you consider one a subset of the other, or are they two things that overlap in some places? They, they, they look, like I said, what is the framework that you're responsible for as a customer? Right. The other one is a product that the vendor is responsible for. I see. But the product you're buying has to deliver, has to be built upon zero trust principles. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. Give an example. So zero trust network access is a product that is part of the SASE portfolio which really delivers zero-trust way of establishing the connect between the user and the entity they're connecting to. Hmm. What? It is part of SASE. If it is not based on zero-trust principles, that principles of least privilege, assume breach, know the user before they can enumerate the application, all of these things are built into that architecture. So zero-trust is way bigger, by the way, than SASE itself. SASE is very well defined, very well contained with the listed list of functionalities. There are a lot of things that you could do in your DMZs on-prem that are not yet part of SASE, if you will. So ability to do full packet capture for forensics, well, that's critical capability. It's not part of SASE yet. Well, when you think about zero trust, it actually extends to accessing the databases, how databases will talk to the applications, how applications talk to applications, and so those use cases are not served by SASE. So Zero Trust being a framework is much larger than the product the SASE is. Do you understand, do, do you have a, a certain amount of empathy who find this a bit fuzzy, a bit, con, a bit confusing to, 
Just suss out the differences. I, I tell you what, I've been in front of customers, and that's what my role is, to work with the largest companies in the world. Yeah. And with some of the you know, ITS services providers and say, Minaj, help me understand the zero trust. So I explain to them, you know, principle, like, like, like the, principle, the building blocks of zero trust. Right. And most customers come back and it's like, oh, we're doing this already. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, there is no default access to any of my applications. I have to know who the user is. Yeah, they can enumerate stuff, but I'm not there. But when you think about zero trust is a journey that you may never finish. I see. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm working with the financials in this, uh, the, the bigger financial companies in the world that actually have dedicated teams to build the zero trust strategy and implement that architecture. And SASE plays an important role there. Because the use cases that they're trying to build are already served by SASE. So it is, yes, it can be confusing. So that's where the distinction between a framework and a product is. You have to understand that. Mm -hmm. Product has limitations in the terms of capabilities. Zero Trust as a framework calls out for a lot many more things. Is there a pathway to success that, that you see for the folks who are doing this and finding success? Yeah. Are there common elements there? There, there are, absolutely yes, right? So one of the, 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 the lowest hanging fruit, if you will, where these two things meet together is ZTNA, which is Zero Trust Network Access. That's a building block, the very first thing you could do to take some of the most critical applications that you have inside your data centers and publish those applications to your known users, not for the world, known users in a very well-defined way in the matter of the principles of least privilege. Mm. So a lot of people confuse this thing with replacing the VPNs. It's a lot more than that. So, for example, at Symantec, we have two levels of ZTNA, for example. One is, like, yeah, we can replace a VPN for you, put the user in touch with the right application. But then, how do you implement the principle of least privilege? So that's the layer three, layer four, kind of a, a tunneling kind of an application publishing. We have a layer seven one, which means the user will only have access to the actual application interface, not the host, not the IP address, not the ports, and so on and so forth. So there are ways to continue to build your policy in a way that you continue to restrict what user absolutely will be able to do and achieve that desired state. So ZTNA is one place where we find that Zero Trust and SASE are coming together, solving that problem. Now, there are two ways to get there, too. When you say, I want to establish Zero Trust, people ask questions, where do we start? Mm -hmm. That's always the very first, where do we start? Mm -hmm. and, um, and usually... The industry will say, let's go with the access part. Who mm -hmm. can access what? The application. Well, with Symantec, we're a little bit different, if you will. You have a way to do the access piece. You can also start with the data. Because at the end of the day, why do we build the security ecosystems around us? Is because we have something worth protecting. Mm -hmm. And what is something that protecting is the, is the reputation of the company, which among a lot of other things, in today's world, relies on how secure your intellectual property is or the data that you became custodian of because you're in that business. How secure is that data? So we understand both the access and the data part. So you can start from either the access part or securing the data itself. That's Minaj Sharma, Global Head of Security Strategy at Symantec.
It is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Caleb Barlow. He is the CEO at Silite. Caleb, great to see you here at RSA Conference. Hey, Dave. It's, first of all, incredible to be doing this finally face-to-face. I, I know. mean, we've been doing this for years, <laughs> and I think this is the first time we've ever met face-to-face, let alone in a, a sea of thousands here. I think you're right. Um, I wanted to touch base on something that I think isn't getting the attention that it deserves, and, and you actually pointed this out to me. As we're walking around on the show floor here at RSA, uh, and indeed here in San Francisco, there's this perception of um, success, of wealth, and a lot of that is well-placed, but it's not the whole story. No, you know, it's not, Dave. And I think, you know, particularly at RSA, right? I mean, this is where we come to show off the innovations, the new technology and the security space. And this year, like any year, there's some amazing things to look at. But I think one of the things that, you know, there's a little bit of an undercurrent here that we have to acknowledge this year. I mean, how many times have we talked on this show about the skills gap and the difficulty in finding people? This is the first time that there's large masses of people walking around in the cybersecurity industry that have been laid off and are looking for jobs. Right. And, um, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that. I think we've got to recognize that, okay, we're still an industry that's going to hire a lot of people. These people are going to find new roles. But, you know, a little bit of that skills gap we talk about, we're taking a big chunk out of it over the last couple of months. Um, You know, the other thing we should probably talk about here too, and this is important whether you're a, a buyer of cybersecurity solutions or maybe you're an employee at a vendor, is that, you know, the pressure is now on in new ways for these cybersecurity companies. Hmm. How so? Well, if you think about it, if you were sitting in the CEO seat of most of these companies over the last five to 10 years, you're in what we call a growth-oriented mindset. Right. And, and we've talked on this show about the rule of 40 as an example. You can look up what that means. Yeah. But you know, the idea was that it was okay if you had a company that was burning cash as long as you were growing that business. As mm-hmm. long as you know, your you know, average annual return was growing year over year, that was actually looked as a good thing and investors would rally behind that and you'd be able to get access to capital. Well, Dave, the world has changed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's, now, it's now all about cash flow. And I think there's a couple of concepts that are really important for people to recognize. So the first thing to, to really recognize in this is that in any of these venture-funded uh, cybersecurity startups, which is most of them on the show floor, you know, it's not just the stock of employees and investors you have to realize that not all stock is equal. There's this thing called the preference stack. Mm. And what this means is that, you know, when a company gets sold, certain people get paid first. So if the company's been successful and it's grown to everyone's aspirations, then everybody makes out great and we're all good. But let's take a different scenario. Let's say that maybe that company's been revalued. Maybe it comes time for it to get sold to, you know, a strategic buyer and it hasn't quite garnered you know, the aspirations that everyone had after it and what was kind of put in that preference stack when people made the investment. Well, the people that lose on that are typically the employees and the management because they don't usually get paid first. Mm. So one of the things that people want to be paying attention to is this preference stack. But the other thing it can mean is, and there are companies here today that have this issue, you know, their employees may be underwater. So even though the company's successful, Mm -hmm. even though the company's moving forward, you know, what motivates people to be entrepreneurs and what motivates this audience is, you know, that opportunity to work hard for a few years and maybe get a bite of that apple of success. And, you know, you might be in a position where you're not going to get that big bite of the apple. 
What about the companies themselves? You know, for years, we've been tracking and, and uh, crowing about the unicorns in the space. Uh, are we still generating unicorns? Well, there is a new term that I learned this week that I've never heard before. And, you know, I don't want to be all gloom and doom, but it's called the zombie corn. And, you know, what you have is, especially last year, there were a whole series of companies that raised, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars in a year. I mean, these are incredible amounts of money. Well, the problem with that is that creates a valuation of what's the company worth. So, you know, you take down 400 million dollars, the company's easily going to be worth probably more than a billion in its valuation of what people anticipate that it should become. So that then creates the unicorn. Right. Well, now the problem is the company's got to grow into that. There may not be the strategic buyers. There may not be the follow-on investments. It's going to be harder to get money. So now what you have are these companies that have taken down all this money, then they've got to grow into that valuation. And that's, you know, what that does is it pushes their time trajectory out potentially many years, especially if we have a potential recession on the way, you know, that could push it even further. So, you know, these companies will get there. They will likely survive, but it may be a very difficult journey for these CEOs and managers as they kind of have to deal with their, you know, you know, their new status as a zombie corn. What about the individuals themselves? You know, earlier today I was talking with my colleague Rick Howard and, and we were saying how so many of these organizations want to hire the high-level people who have a lot of experience and they're willing to throw a lot of money at those people to get them. But I still hear stories about particularly the entry-level folks who are having trouble getting hired. It's like this disconnect there. People don't want to... My perception is companies don't want to invest in hiring and training those people up. They want the fully baked person. I I think you're absolutely right. And I think we have a new problem. I Mm -hmm. mean, we've talked about the skills gap in security. We've talked about the diversity challenges in security. But I think we actually have a new problem, which is an accessibility gap. Hmm. Meaning that there are workers that want these jobs. There are people that are capable over three months, six months, a year's worth of training to be able to move into these jobs. But what we have to do is make these jobs accessible. And what that means is we have to upskill. You know, so I think part of what this means for your, you know, HR managers at companies is to pivot the spend. Today, if you go recruit a high caliber individual, you could be spending a lot of money on a recruiter. You know, in many cases, well north of six figures. Right. To recruit that individual who it becomes difficult to retain. Right? So, you know, if you want to spend $100,000 recruiting a top cyber threat hunter and they leave after two years, you didn't really gain anything out of that. So, you know, the new approach to this that I think a lot of people are going to start looking at is to say, why don't we take that same money and why don't we invest in upskilling individuals? Now, there's a couple of benefits that come out of that. One, it's going to cost a whole lot less. Two, there is a higher likelihood that person is going to be retained. Mm. And third, I think the loyalty of that individual, because you helped them get there, is inconsequential. Now, the negative of the upskilling is it's going to take time. You know, right. You're going to have to invest the time up front rather than in, in recruiting. You're going to have to invest the time in training. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's okay. And I think people are starting to realize that. You know, the, the other thing I'd leave you with, Dave, is let's also not forget about interest rates. Mm. So, you know, if anyone's looking at buying a home, they might have noticed that interest rates have gone from nearly nothing to, you know, 7 8%. Right. Well, remember, business loans, especially business loans for startups, are going to be much more than what you're going to see in a home loan. 
So also what we have is a lot of companies here coming through the pandemic, maybe it wasn't the right time to raise capital. So instead they you know, went to a debt, ser a debt service. There are companies here that might have 50 to $100 million in loans. Well, now all of a sudden, you're not paying a few percentage points on that. You might be spending millions of dollars a year just servicing the loan. And does so, that shorten the runway for them? That absolutely shortens the runway. So yeah. this is the other thing that I think a lot of companies are dealing with. And, there, and the reason to mention this isn't gloom and doom. It, you know, let's remember, we're in an industry that's going to be successful. But what it means is that as employees at companies, at buyers of solutions, we now need to pay attention to how is that company capitalized? What is their runway? Are they going to be around? And most importantly, are they going to be able to retain their curricle staff? Yeah. All right. Well, Caleb Barlow, thank you for coming by and uh, always an interesting conversation. It's great to see you in person. Likewise, Dave. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. <laughs> <laughs>